This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. But it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges in the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening to the City of London. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is off today, so Marcus Ashworth of Bloomberg Opinion will be joining me for the entire hour. You are now listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. All right, let's get a little bit of a picture here on where we are. So uh, stocks over in Europe traded a little heavy today. You had the CAC off by 8 tenths of 1%. A euro also off by 5 tenths of 1%. Um, volume was a little mixed. The main event is going to be tomorrow and the ECB meeting. We're going to break that down with Marcus in just a moment. Here in the U.S., no direction whatsoever within the equity market. Um, and the bond market, a little bit of selling over in Europe and here in the U.S., yields pushing a little bit higher, but nothing really happening until that ECB meeting and the U.S. inflation data on Friday. Some idiosyncratic stories over in Europe that we'll get to. Uh, Inditext, for example, um, the parent of Zara reporting its highest profitability in 10 years that's not something that you're hearing from retailers. It is definitely a supply chain, a cost uh, management issue. Operating income rose a whopping 82% in the last quarter. Uh, Wizz Air also uh, did flag issues in the industry, but basically said that summer demand is super bullish. Uh, we'll talk to the CEO later on in the hour as well. Like I mentioned, that main event is the ECB, and that is why Marcus Ashworth is the perfect co-host <laughs> for the next hour. Marcus, it is wonderful to have you. Thank you for keeping me company. My pleasure. Okay, so ECB, go. Well, uh, yeah, I, actually, I'm actually quite looking forward to this one. Uh, normally, I find it intensely dull, and uh, Madame Lagarde's sort of monotone and mangling in the English language makes it quite awkward to follow at times. However... Uh, she could have a really difficult meeting this one because mm-hmm. as the week has gone on and as the Reserve Bank of both Australia and India have hiked by 50 basis points, both sort of a bit of surprise, the pressure is definitely increasing, it seems, or it's building in our minds anyway, that maybe the expected 25 basis point rate hike that she's pre-announced for July might be brought forward to this very month, in fact, tomorrow. Now, this would muck up all their very clever sequencing of how they end their buying of QE and starting of interest rates sort of schedule they've really got very clever about. But in some senses, needs must, maybe. So there's a possibility, I'm not saying it's a likelihood, but it's a possibility that either they bring forward the July hike to June or indeed they actually increase the July hike and make clear they're going to probably go 50 rather than 25. So we're not quite sure what's going to happen. Quick, quick question on that. So sequencing-wise, can they actually hike tomorrow? Well, actually, not to get too complicated, no, they can't really. Okay. Um, and it's because of a thing called a maintenance period, and that QE is not going to... Well, they can, but it would mean they're still technically buying bonds, uh, even though they've high interest rates. But I think, really, in the greatest schemes, they could get over it, mm-hmm. but I'm sure they'll find technical reasons why they simply couldn't. And do you feel like they really do genuinely want to see what happens between June or July, or they just need more time to kind of communicate with the market or like, or what? It depends on your your view of the governing council. If you're uh, Madame Lagarde, Panetta, 
or Lane and most probably of the other uh, members of the executive board, probably they want to buy as much time as possible. They're very, they're very understandably worried about recession hitting Europe uh, later this year. Um, however, however, probably the majority now on the governing council uh, and particularly possibly the governor of, uh, sorry, the president of the Bundesbank and indeed uh, of the Banque de France, it seems, according to a Les Echo article earlier this week, that they are asserting a bit more control. Hmm. And in that sense, they are probably happy to just get on with things. And I think that's the point, is that, you know, we've got a eight years worth of negative rates in Europe, uh, over a decade now of, of easing and, and constantly super low rates. And it's got to end sometime with hmm. inflation at 8.1%. Uh, there's no time like the present. Well, and also to the point that, and I was reading on MLive about this, that the economy and the liquidity and the money sloshing around in Europe is so much better that there's no like sovereign debt crisis thing that's going to happen if you hike rates. Like it, it'll be in the mm. financial markets, right? Like you could see it in spreads, you could see it in the euro, but like, but the countries can take it. Do you agree with that? Oh, um, no, not really. I mean, the honest answer is I don't know and I don't think they do either. So <laughs> that's um, totally legit. Yeah, I think that. Uh, you could argue, and I think that's uh, one of my colleagues, Ben Ram, who's been writing some wonderful stuff recently, has quite clearly put it out that though the spread, for instance, of Italy over Germany has widened about 50 basis points or so over the last three or four months, that's actually quite normal. The way that overall yields have gone up, you're going to get slightly less rated uh, credits widening a bit further. So everything's fairly calm and controlled, and it certainly isn't a panic situation. And yes, the ECB has got lots of other different types of tools it could, in theory, use. Mm-hmm. They're also talking about creating a surprise one. We'll come on to that later. But uh, does this mean that, that you know, it, there won't be a, uh, a sovereign bond crisis? I don't think anyone can say that. Fair enough. I mean, what do you think freaks the ECB out? Is it, is it four? Is it four handle on Italian bonds? Is it yeah, like two that's... for Germany? Like, what, what, what freaks them? Oh, I think the the wibble factor is probably around four, certainly for Italy. Now we're we're not, you know, we're close to the levels we saw uh, in the 2018 Italian sort of crisis of, of its own, um, which was a more of a political crisis than than mm-hmm. anything else. But also, it was falling out badly with Brussels at the time. Um, so it's a different time, similar yields, but different measures and different results. So we've got a much better relationship with uh, with Brussels. Uh, Mario Draghi is prime minister uh, now rather than ECB president mm-hmm. then is very much sort of uh, the key person. And I think he's going to do everything, uh, you know, that everyone needs to, to have confidence in Italy. And certainly if you look at the math, there's a lot more debt. So that's bad. Mm. But in some ways they have controlled uh, a lot of the other different financing. They borrowed more at better times. They have more flexibility, but one sort of, negates the other because the debt has definitely went down increased the, the debt to gdp ratio of italy now is is well above 150 percent and so as you do get closer to for instance, say a line in the sand like four percent it it does get a little bit difficult it then requires it to run what's known as a positive budget surplus mm-hmm. which it can do actually and it has done the fast but it makes their wiggle room in their spending uh, particularly on keeping the economy um supported much tougher all right well Fair enough. So like it's 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 better, but it's not perfect at the end of the day from where we used to be. Um, here's a question for you. So we had um, Eurozone GDP growth for the first quarter was actually revised higher to six tenths of one percent on a quarter on quarter basis. Right. That was almost double than what had originally been expected. And there was some reading that I did that this actually makes the ECB's jobs even harder because maybe 
the inflation that we're seeing is also demand driven. If GDP is holding up and inflation is demand driven as well as supply driven, the ECB is going to have to do a lot more. Do you feel that way? I don't think they're at that point yet. But again, it definitely depends on which side of the the governing council you you refer to. I, I think they'll be very happy, the ECB, to see that. And in some senses, will give them more confidence that 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 we can handle a hike mm-hmm. uh, and, and get to say zero rates, but really they're they're as always going to want to buy as much time as they possibly can because even getting to zero rates, I think we'll see Lagarde want to say, look, we need to pause because there are other things going on at the same time. It's not just interest rates we have to focus on here. We have to focus on the ending of QE purchases. Mm-hmm. Now there's a huge amount of stock in there, five trillion, in fact, of of bonds that the ECB owns. But uh, and there will be reinvestments of, of, of the maturing bonds up to about four hundred and forty billion each year. But that's it's not going to be no flow. We're going to go from forty billion a month of buying to zero. That's going to have some impact. At the same time, we have this amazing super cheap bank lending scheme called the Teltro, the mm-hmm. targeted long term refinancing operations, which are going to become quite a lot less generous uh, over the rest of the course of this year. And even the ECB itself expects a significant decline in its nine trillion overall balance sheet so they've got a lot of other moving parts which are tightening financial conditions markets is jets i'm so excited that you're going to hang out with me for an hour uh, marcus ashworth <laughs> joining me for the next hour coming up on the program we're going to talk about boris johnson and what's next for brexit this is bloomberg this is the cable with guy johnson and alex Steele on bloomberg radio in a long uh, political career so far, I have, of course, picked up, so barely begun, I have, of course, picked up political opponents all over. That was Boris Johnson uh, talking to Parliament earlier. This is just day, a day after he had to deal with 40% of his party uh, voting against him in a vote of confidence. Um, he's trying to sound a beat. He's trying to sound that he has more political control. He still has a lot to do from dealing with Article 16 as well as the cost of living uh, crisis in the UK. Does does he really have any ability to do those things now? Uh, market Marcus, oh, uh, I can't talk. Sorry, I just stuttered there. Marcus Ashworth uh, with me now. Marcus, can they do anything? Honestly, can he get anything done? Well, I think uh, I think what's going on here with Boris is that he's he's leading the fight back, Alex. And uh, the question is. Um, whether he'll be allowed to by his own party. And it seems at the moment that they're going to let him. So um, we have nothing but um, more spending and big uh, whiz-bang things to distract us from uh, the local difficulties, I suspect. I just can't imagine what that feels like. As a prime minister, first of all, to get into politics, you have to have a large ego anyway. And then <laughs> to have to have a vote of, uh, a vote of confidence and 40% of your party votes against you, that's like got to hurt or something. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, the loss very badly handed, handled uh, the, the whole thing. Um, I think quite a bit of those 41% were just trying to give them a bit of a bloody nose and probably surprised that other people were doing the same thing. Anyways, from the moment he's got one year's grace, I don't think they'll be able to change the rules on him unless things are dramatically worse mm-hmm. for him over the course of the summer. Um, but look, he's really in last chance saloon as far as policy is concerned here. He's got to do something big over the course of the next probably two years, uh, but really within the next year, which means really within the next six months. Um, You know, big stuff, properly actually either really cutting taxes and getting the cost of living crisis uh, semi-relieved or big levelling up or whatever whatever it is. But he needs something and he needs it now. Um, Yeah. He also seems to be betting on 
Article 16 and overriding that. Uh, Joe Mays, Bloomberg, uh, joins us now. Um, he covers all things politics. The latest headline is that Boris Johnson has plans to press ahead with legislation giving him the power to override parts of the Brexit deal. Joe, it, does he have support for this? Well, that's the thing. It looks like he perhaps doesn't amongst a large you know, select section of his party. And that's why it seems like the timing of this is perhaps being delayed. Now, we were hearing it could come tomorrow, but now it could come even later, perhaps next week or even the week after. Because I think Boris is worried about kind of shaking the tree again and suddenly agitating all his MPs on an issue that has been very divisive. You know, Jesse Norman, the former Treasury Minister who called for Boris Johnson's resignation this week, cited the approach to the Northern Ireland Protocol in his reason for not having confidence in the Prime Minister. So he's got to be very careful. And it looks like that this is one of the reasons why this is being delayed. But Joe, I mean, I hear what you're saying here, and it's very easy to pick up on the the, the people who are you know, disagree. But it seemed to me, certainly watching PMQs, that um, if he, this is not a problem he can avoid any longer. In the sense, he's either got to say, "Look, I am going to play very nice with Europe, and we'll we'll, we'll all play uh, nicely," or he's got to have the back, perhaps, of the Democratic Unionist Party in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, sorry, and come up with something which is going to make them perhaps agree to go back into Stormont and into a, into a power sharing agreement indeed with Sinn Féin. So he, he can't avoid this. And perhaps by being slightly more uh, aggressive, uh, he'll probably get the majority of the Tory party behind him. Yes, I think he would have the majority, like you say. But remember, only only 32 more MPs have voted against him on Monday night. He would no longer be prime minister. So he, he's dealing with very thin margins at this point. But I think you're right to say that he has to make a choice. And if he does choose to accede to the DUP's demand, which is effectively getting rid of in its entirety the RSC border that the protocol creates, then that would perhaps you know get this storm on executive up and up and running again, but would massively increase the likelihood of a trade war with the European Union. So he has to basically choose between his two outcomes. What does he want? Does he want to get Northern Ireland back up and running or does he want to avoid the trade war? So um, for now he's trying to play it nice with the EU. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really scared. <laughs> We're going to leave that right there. Hey, Joe, thanks a lot. Really appreciate uh, Joe Mays joining us. Um, coming up, it's been the news of the day. Uh, Credit Suisse uh, probably having to cut some jobs, having a really difficult macro time and micro time. Maybe there's a potential bidder in the mix as well. We'll break it down. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Well, my base case for Credit Suisse is clearly that it's going to take quite some time to recover, uh, to regain trust from all stakeholders. I mean, this includes obviously clients, but also uh, own uh, staff, uh, regulators and so on. And, you know, this is not a, a, a thing that you can do over a few quarters, rather a few years. So buckle down. That's pretty much uh, what Andreas Venditti, a banks analyst on Credit Suisse, was talking to me earlier on television about. And the news of the day was Credit Suisse struggling in terms of its uh, in terms of its profitability and maybe having to cut staff. And then the headline broke right before 10 o'clock uh, that State Street could be interested uh, in buying the company. Then there was rumors that State Street was going to comment. And then finally, we got a no comment comment from State Street. So I hope that's clear. For everybody. Uh, Marcus Ashworth is still with me, guest host, and also Bloomberg's Paul Davies is joining us on Credit Suisse. Um, what did you make of the last 12 hours in relation to the bank? Uh, hi, sorry, are you asking me, Paul? I am asking you, Paul. Yes, sorry. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, remarkable, really. I mean, the, a, a very 
confident, very uh, you know, proud kind of interview with the uh, head of the investment bank in New York uh, yesterday that, that Bloomberg had, talking about how we're back, we're hiring, we're bringing the bank, we're doing deals, etc. And then very shortly afterwards, the third profits warning in this year, the sixth in seven quarters, I think it is. Uh, I mean, just incredible, really. So, Paul, um, is it uh, fair to say that Credit Suisse or Debit Suisse has taken over Deutsche Bank's mantle here? Because oh, good uh, we, one. Were talk- yeah. <laughs> we were talking about this earlier, actually, the two of us, and we were discussing why on earth would State Street want to buy Credit Suisse and would it be allowed? And maybe it buys a bit of its uh, US operations or something, but it doesn't make any sense to us. But it's just uh, poor old Credit Suisse. It just doesn't seem to get any better, does it? Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, I mean, I guess there's like, I mean, there's a lot of problems. I'm personally convinced and have been for a while that the turnaround is going to take longer than a lot of other, um, or a lot of investors seem to think, uh, in terms of if you look at the share price and how it's performed and the, the price to book value and this sort of thing. I mean, it still trades at a slight premium to Deutsche Bank, which I think is remarkable. Um, and if you look at the, I don't have them up in front of me right now, but earnings forecasts and, and returns forecasts over the next few years, Deutsche Bank is ahead of Credit Suisse in each of the next three years, or it was the last time I looked anyway, in terms of what people are expecting. I mean, I guess the bottom line is longer term, everybody still thinks Credit Suisse has a higher returning private banking and wealth management business compared to Deutsche's, you know, very low returning, very large, very sluggish German retail business. You know, those are hard facts that you can't get away from. But you know, still, right now, Deutsche Bank is, has been benefiting greatly from the huge sort of boom in kind of markets and trading and, and volatility that we've had in the last couple of years. Credit Suisse is in all of the wrong business areas at the moment. Um, and yeah, and it has all of the problems to fix. So, but it wasn't wealth management part of the issue for them right now because they have exposure to Asia and their Asian clients have been retrenching a bit because of the volatility. Wasn't that like the surprise yeah. negative that we learned? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I mean, that wasn't a surprise today in the sense that that is something that we did see last year uh, as well. Um, I remember last it, year. That's like, I mean, you know. Yeah, no, it was back, end, back, back end of last year, there was a lot of deleveraging um, from uh, uh, among these Asian clients. I mean, the thing that uh, both Credit Suisse and UBS say about this, because obviously UBS has huge exposure to exactly the same sorts of clients in, in China and elsewhere in Asia, is... Um, is that they delever quickly when they when they decide they don't fancy what's going on in markets, but then they they start borrowing and trading again very actively as soon as they do uh, fancy a punt on on whatever it might be, you know, FX or, or stocks or, or or what have you. Um, so you know that has been a bit of a disappointment. The Asia business in general has been a bit of a disappointment for quite a while at Credit Suisse, even though that was the the big thing that Tijan Tiam, when he was CEO, wanted to kind of focus on and accentuate and promised all the future would be about. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it's quite a volatile business. It's quite, uh, it's, it, 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 you know, shrinks and grows again in, uh, quite rapidly. But uh, presumably this, I mean, I've lost count of how many banks sort of the, the whole plan is based on Asia and private wealth. It, it seems to be that, you know, it goes around in circles, but clearly the last few years it's been the, the big thing for everyone has Credit Suisse been particularly poor compared to others? No, I don't. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, in that sense, there are lots of other banks that come and go in the region. Uh, they announce big plans. They they hire a bunch of relationship managers in a very expensive way, in sort of private banking, and then they don't. 
get all of the clients that they want and then they quietly let them all go again once their guaranteed pay <laughs> is, is, is done, I think, a lot of the time. Um, you know, UBS and Credit Suisse have been there sort of much longer. and have, have, I mean, UBS especially you know, has a much, much bigger business. Um, Credit Suisse is, is, I think, a second to it. There might be somebody else um, as well in the mix. But, you know, significantly bigger than everybody else and a significantly you know, longer-lasting sort of foothold in those regions. Um, so, I mean, one of the problems that they had in the past few years was sort of separating, in some ways, their sort of investment banking and trading business in Asia from everything else because uh, Tijan Tian, when he was CEO, wanted to kind of package up Asia as a kind of a separate thing and show that it was, it was brilliant on its own. But it, it's very transactional. Um, you don't get a lot of kind of, you know, the annuity-like repeatable revenues that, that people like to see from banks these days. Uh, it, it's very lumpy and very up and down. And, and the investment bank and the markets business particularly suffered mm-hmm. from being separated from the, you know, every, the, the rest of the investment bank and markets business. Or hey, Paul, before, before I let you go, um, does Thomas Gottstein keep his job? Oh, same question. So, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, this has been like, you know, obviously we had a story, Bloomberg News had a story about how the board was thinking about a change. You know, the chairman came out and backed him entirely in exactly the way that you would expect the chairman of a Premier League football club to do. Um, you know, how, however, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I guess it's like, it, I mean, that story seems a little early. It doesn't seem like there is anything going on um, right at this minute. However, the longer the difficulties persist and the longer it takes to recover, the more they're going to obviously think about this, I think. I feel like the Deutsche Bank model is such a model that we look at. Turnover might not be an insane, crazy thing. Hey, Paul, thanks a lot. Paul Davies uh, joining us from Bloomberg. Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk about nuclear fission and the role it's going to play in the energy transition, particularly in Europe. It's going to be nerdy. It's going to be cool. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson is off today and Marcus Ashworth is joining me over in London. A quick check in here on the market. Stocks, honestly, in the U.S., pretty much going nowhere. The idiosyncratic fund stories, Twitter, for example, those shares are spiking. Apparently, according to the Washington Post, um, Twitter is planning to comply with Elon Musk's demands for more bot data. He amended his 13D a couple days ago to ask for more information. Maybe they comply. Maybe the deal gets done. He can't get out of it. Who knows? Um, in other stocks, you're looking at Exxon earlier today hitting a record high. Um, oil prices continue to climb higher as well. But let's be honest, we're really just waiting for the ECB tomorrow. And also the latest read on inflation here in the U.S. on Friday. We get that CPI. So in the meantime, it's a really good time to take a second and talk about something else that's happening in the market. There's been a huge energy crisis, and we're in the middle of an energy transition, which brings us to alternative forms of energy, and one of them, nuclear fusion. I said fission. I meant fusion last time. I just want to be clear. It's fusion. Um, Joining us to discuss what it is, what it means, is Marvel Fusion Chief Executive Moritz von der Linden. Um, He runs a nuclear fusion energy company that's backed by the same German company that backed BioNTech. Um, They've raised uh, 60 million euros since 2019, um, and they're trying to pursue an innovative approach to generate unlimited clean fusion energy using lasers. I got that right, right? What does that mean? Welcome, by the way. (laughs) Um, What is nuclear fusion? 
So fusion is uh, fusing two atom cores. Um, in our case, uh, hydrogen proton and uh, boron 11, which is uh, a so-called aneutronic reaction resulting in no nuclear waste. Mm. Um, we're banking on a, a paradigm shift in fusion utilizing um, a very strong uh, latest generation lasers to create fusion conditions in a small uh, millimeter size fuel target and uh, this uh, results in uh, high energy gain and um, uh, leading towards a commercial power plant. So Marisa, I mean, I'm trying to resist the sort of uh, Dr. Evil uh, analogies here but I mean, we're using lasers but I mean this is the, the holy grail here which uh, if I'm right in believing is sort of never been achieved in, in, in any form of uh, usable fashion bar, bar perhaps you know briefly in a laboratory type scenario or very large laboratory anyway but um what is the scalability of this because obviously this is a, a whole new era surely uh, that's correct marcus and that's why we are um, pursuing this uh, paradigm shift um, moving away from uh, conventional approaches and utilizing lasers uh, and and nanofabricated uh, targets to reach the goal of uh, commercially viable energy gain in this fusion process. Should we be successful, it's very scalable as it's inherently safe. Um, as I mentioned, there's no radioactive waste. Um, the uh, product of the fusion reaction is helium. So even if a plane falls on top of it, you'd have natural helium in the air, which is there already. And it um, is rather compact, uh, uh, football field size uh, a power plant, which could serve um, urbanized areas or uh, industrial demand in the world. So you've raised um, 60 million euros since 2019. How much do you need to like make all this happen? And how does it like, did you get orders or partners to then continue to develop it? In total, we uh, need around 3 billion euros for a prototype um, over the next uh, years to come. Um, next step is uh, showing uh, sufficient uh, energy gain over the next uh, two years um, to then move on a proprietary facility and power plant. On route to that uh, power plant, we have uh, already partnered with uh, companies like uh, French uh, Thales and German Trumpf mm. for the laser and uh, Siemens Energy for uh, power plant technology. And we're looking to add further partners uh, also here in the US. So do you think you need or, or should get, or, or in fact, completely avoid uh, state help? or, or Because obviously this is a super important, you know, we think about raising X billion for some tech app which delivers food to you or, or whatever may be, it's not really going to change the world. This is going to change the world. So mm -hmm. uh, do you think that uh, this is best done completely privately or um, some, some state help as long as not control might be helpful? I do believe that um, there should be the backing of uh, a government or rather governments um, and, uh, you know, really looking here to defend, uh, you know, Western values. As you said, this will change the world. So I think, uh, um, you know, investors uh, should or will come from Europe and, and the U.S. Um, and... Uh, um, 
then hopefully, you know, helping us to um, um, turn this into a a commercially viable approach in in the very near future. I'm wondering if the energy crisis that we're seeing unfold in Europe in particular is making this job for you easier or harder. So on the one hand, I could say easier because we, we see that we need all different forms of energy but harder because we really truly can't phase out things like natural gas and coal and oil. Yeah, so even though I'm CEO of a fusion company, I very much um, advocate for a technology open approach to tackle this crisis. We Mm -hmm. need to look at different options. Renewables are, you know, welcome and an important step for energy transition. But over the next thirty years, they'll probably only um, be able to supply forty percent of the energy demand of a planet with then twelve billion people. So we need to look at, um, you know, fourth generation fission this time uh, reactors using thorium. And we obviously need to um, pursue a fusion, particularly in our approach. Um, with uh, proton boron 11 uh, that uh, has you know high commercial viability, um, no cost for uh, storing, maintaining uh, nuclear waste, and and inherently safe. Um, the energy crisis, I would say specifically for Marvel Fusion, um, has you know highlighted it, the need to do that, and um, and also you know partners and and, and investors are um, aligned with with that goal. Well, I certainly think it's it's possibly one of the most interesting things I've I, I've ever sort of spoken to about on radio. Yep. Uh, See, just, you know, this is what happens when you co-host. You get to talk about nuclear fusion and the and the future <laughs> of energy uh, globally. Um, but we are definitely in uh, a very tough spot. Um, in the short term, what's going to be a goal short term for you right now? So short term, we're going to. Uh, run experimental campaigns this year at the uh, Colorado State University and Mm. the University of uh, Texas at Austin, uh, demonstrating the key uh, physics drivers of this concept. Um, So we're leveraging uh, existing infrastructure in in the US uh, to uh, demonstrate our unique approach to fusion. And so, um, you know, near term over the next, months to come, um, we uh, can hopefully take another important milestone. Well, it's important. It's an important form of energy. um, And we appreciate you stopping by and good luck uh, to you as well. Uh, Moritz von der Linden, uh, Marvel Fusion Chief Executive Officer, uh, joining us here in the studio. Thank you very much. Uh, Coming up. Hey, Marcus, you going on a plane anytime soon? Um, No, not really. Yeah. Yeah, me neither. Um, Apparently everyone else is. At least that's what Wizz Air is saying uh, over the summer. Uh, We'll hear more from the CEO. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I, for one, have zero desire to get on a plane. Marcus is not getting on a plane. I'm pretty sure the guy would love to get on a plane. Um... How we're spending our money is really the question. Um, Wiz Air CEO Yosef Varadu was on with Anna Edwards on Bloomberg earlier today, and they talked about the travel industry, how they deal with global volatility, inflation, and all this kind of shifts in demand. 
we are seeing incredibly strong demand. Um, the least issue in the industry at the moment is demand. Uh, people are back. People want to fly. Actually, people have some savings to spend. Uh, and uh, the issue is, is a lot more around the supply chain performance right now. But in terms of demand, we are seeing a lot of people uh, booking. Uh, I mean, if I just look at the last few weeks, our booking rate is 55, 55% up uh, versus the same period in 2019. So demand is incredibly strong. So the, the last thing you have to worry about is demand. Demand is strong. But one of the issues that that is creating is, uh, quote unquote, chaos at UK airports and maybe other places as well. You tell me, is this a UK story or is it elsewhere? It is not a UK story. I think the UK story is probably a little bit bigger than uh, the re in, in the rest of the world, but we are seeing systemic issues across the industry globally. Uh, the supply chain is uh, out of labour resources. Uh, we are seeing uh, constraints in uh, ATCR traffic management. Uh, we don't have enough controllers in the system. As a result, we are suffering a lot of delays and uh, ending up with cancellations uh, at the end of the day. We are seeing airport security, ground handling, not having uh, mm. sufficient stuff. As a result, they are putting a lot of strains on the operation of the, of the industry. Yeah. So that's the issue. How, so there's a number of issues you listed there. I mean, how many more flights have you had to cancel than would be normally operational? I mean, we hardly cancel. I mean, we cancel less than 1% of our flights. Uh, but in recent days, uh, we, we had a day we had to cancel 4% of our flights uh, due to this very distressing operating uh, environment. Uh, the industry uh, must restuff uh, itself. Uh, we need to get sufficient number of people properly trained uh, to properly uh, uh, operate this, uh, this industry. Uh, we have been maintaining some unproductivity uh, in the system during the COVID period uh, to make sure that when ramp up is coming, actually we are ready to ramp up. Mm. Many of the other uh, players, stakeholders in the industry decided to, uh, to lay people off in a big way. And now here we are, people are back to travel and they don't have people to support the operation. That was CEO of Wiz Air, Yosef Avarardi, uh, joining us. Um, how, do you have an idea, Mark, as of how terrible it is to travel in the UK right now? Well, I do, actually, because though I said I'm not going to take a flight, I had, did take a flight relatively recently, a mm. uh, very expensive one to Dublin, which is just across the way, really, less than an hour in the air, I think. And um, it was a turmoil both there and uh, equally worse, probably, actually, back in, in the UK. Dublin Airport had a particularly bad weekend at the time, but it's all about lack of staff. Mm -hmm. um, the whole sort of on-off switch, which is turned on in travel, uh, they've all been complaining about not being allowed to travel. The second we are allowed to travel, everyone wants to travel. They're not able to uh, find the staff to make everyone be able to travel. And it's a disaster uh, of quite epic proportions, actually, across um, most parts of the UK and uh, I think around most of Europe. So it's a difficult time uh, as everyone tries to you know, cope with a logistics essentially yeah and here, here's my thing too is that i get that everyone's going to travel in the summer pent-up demand yada 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 okay fine so you're willing for that one big trip that you haven't taken in two years to deal with the crappy lines and and the lack of staffing and all that but after that what kind of discretionary spending are you really going to put towards travel when it's just a terrible experience like that's why I, guy and i talk about this all the time like sort of the lack of visibility then in 2023 yeah, I, I hear you. And it certainly uh, my wife and I looked, we both looked at each other, do we really want to do this? Yeah. I mean, this is not, this is not fun in any context. You know, the, the, the whole day wasted to go uh, an hour flight and, and a misery of, of not knowing whether you're going to get your bags, even the, the baggage um, thing broke down as well. So we were, we were waiting even when we landed for another two and a half hours. So oh. you know, it's just, uh, let alone all the flights have been cancelled. It, it, it is not making... The whole experience is going to put, a lot, I think, a lot of people off. 
Yeah, totally. And all the and so you have these airlines that are trying to ramp up capacity because they're like, cool, everyone's traveling. And then all of a sudden, everyone's going to be like, forget it, I hate you, and they're not going to travel. And then it's going to be sort of like what we saw with retail. Um, I'm with you. I, I, I have zero desire to get on a plane. I'm not going to get on a plane unless I absolutely have to. Um, all I can think of is the situation you were in where your luggage doesn't come off the carousel and you're just there and you're waiting forever. Um, all right, we'll go back to markets next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. So let's get back to the markets here. I mentioned how we're kind of in a wait and see mode, waiting for the ECB, waiting for the CPI from the U.S. on Friday. Bond yields 3% here in the U.S. Chunky sell-off over in Europe. Equities kind of going nowhere. But one thing that really surprises me um, is dollar-yen. What? The what is going on with dollar yen? We're at a 22-year uh, high, 20-year high, I should say. It's sort of like how high can your can dollar yen go? How orderly can it be when it gets disorderly? What does the BOJ do? These are all questions that I feel like everyone's uh, on the street are starting to talk about. Marcus Ashworth is in for Guy Johnson, and he joins me now. What is up with dollar yen? Well, basically, the, the Bank of Japan has has two options. Either it wants to keep its bond yields down or it wants to keep its currency in, under control, and it can't do both. At the moment, it's choosing, it seems, to keep its bond yields fixed at no higher than one quarter of 1% in 10 years. And that is um, basically the only way they can sort of achieve that uh, with with what else, else going on in the world is by letting the currency weaken while claiming they are not letting their currency weaken or they won't let the currency weaken or they're watching it or they're watching it intently or even more super intently than ever. So uh, in that context, um, you know, we, we are seeing all about the dollar strength and more dollar strength equals more yen weakness by definition. And it's it's the it's the weakest point of le- point of least resistance is the yen. So what's the knock on effect of that? Like, are we seeing a lot of capital flows out of Japan. We carry trade. I'm just wondering, like, what is the effect in the markets? Because then, how quickly that can potentially be unwound? It's not that big in some senses. Hmm. Okay, so let me try and get this straight. I mean, I've just been looking at the Japanese investor flows. They're not buying. In fact, they've been selling U.S. Treasuries. They normally buy it for the extra yield. Uh, so they're a bit worried about FX risk and volatility rather than the extra yield they're getting. Um, at the same time, I-, I think the fact that you know. And the stock market quite likes the fact that the yen is weaker. Obviously, by definition, it's an export economy. So a weaker currency normally is better for it. So as long as the stock market isn't wobbling, which it isn't, as long as keeping the bond market sort of literally on ice because it never really trades or moves, mm-hmm. and, and they can keep that, then at the moment, a bit of inflation for, is good for Japan. Bear in mind, it, it really isn't suffering, even though it's a very heavy export, you know, sorry, energy dependent. It imports a lot of energy. Uh, it needs inflation more than most, and they managed to keep it under control because they they basically had deflation for decades. So it, their problems are not are, are slightly different magnitude to perhaps the rest of the world. Um, hey, Kriti Gupta joins us now from Bloomberg. We're just talking about dollar yen. What are you hearing on the street? Dollar yen is fascinating for so many reasons, but to me, there's a signal baked into the market, and it is the Chinese yuan versus the yen, which is bouncing mm-hmm. right up against the twenty level. And this is something that was actually brought to my attention by Cameron Kreiss and Damien Sassauer. When you look at the EM space, Japan and China are both... Sorry, I'm like catching my breath here. As I, like, I think we made you run, run into the studio, studio. <laughs> did we? I, th- I think we Just literally a little bit, but that's okay. I love the show. Um, 
basically, I'm like very out of shape, which is <laughs> and here. also to be fair, Marcus, you're just on vacation in in Spain and London. So, I wasn't you know. prepared to run in pants and heels. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyways, these are two countries that are export based. Japan for its cars, its chips, uh, so many other other products. China for everything yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. in China. They're also both net importers of oil. And if you look at the comments from uh, the BOJ governor, Kuroda, overnight, he says specifically, he highlights the commodity pressures might not be uh, or perhaps too much for the Jap- Japanese economy to bear. He also talks about simply the rate hike, um, which I think is pretty consensus here that even a small rate hike to tackle inflation could hurt the Japanese economy to a point of recession. So the signal that a lot of people are watching for it's actually the dollar yuan fixing is if the yuan versus the Japanese yen hits the 20 level. The idea here being that back in April and back in 2015, when it did hit the 20 level, you immediately saw the yuan fix higher against the dollar, meaning that they devalued their currency more to make sure that they were able to still compete with Japan. So it's not just a Japanese story Mm -hmm. or a kind of a yen weakness story. It really becomes a question of, in the face of a lot of G10 currencies that are getting stronger and stronger because of these central bank decisions, how many of them are actually, or on the other side of it, also have to deal with exports and falling exports? Yeah, it's the local competition because it's not just China. That's very much the China-Japan thing is a very, very important thing to point out. Uh, You can chuck Korea in the mix there as well um, because they're all competing against each other. And certainly we've seen China in previous years do all sorts of things like buy ups, a lot lot of very short-dated Japanese T-bills just to influence, we say, um, the, the currency rate uh, in their favor. And that's, I clearly think that's absolutely right. A super strong dollar against the yen is, is very important. But you've got to put it in the context of what is the Chinese yuan doing because you know they are not going to put themselves at a disadvantage, particularly as their economy is struggling at the moment. And there was this one point that one of our guests made earlier, um, Brian Weinstein of Morgan Stanley Investment Management, he was on surveillance this morning, and he said that It doesn't have to be when you have this question of so much liquidity all of a sudden taken out of the system. You have JGBs that are basically been pegged to zero. What is the shock absorber? The shock absorber is going to be the yen. But it doesn't necessarily take some sort of big Asian financial crisis, for example, type of uh, esoteric nature to come for everything to come crashing down. It can be something as subtle as JGBs start to have liquidity that drops and you know one morning they're at 25 the next morning they're at 35 and that in itself could be this massive ripple effect that affects not just japan or not just asia but the entire world no people have started to talk about this a bit bit of like a sort of swiss national bank when they drop the peg um Hmm. i personally don't ever see it i think i've covered japan for uh, far too many years probably more years than you've been alive critty um that's actually very possible almost certainly in fact and you know Japan doesn't give in unless it really has to. But my word, it would be the big the big mover if they did all of a sudden. But at some point, possibly you're right. They they either drop the zero point two five ban and go to thirty five, you said, or even fifty. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it would be catastrophic. But I personally, I think they they've held out so far, and mm-hmm. I think the, they'll hold out on the bonds and they'll let the currency uh, suffer. But I think you guys both bring up a really interesting point, which is these kind of things when you have fed hikes and stuff there's always some kind of financial disaster we just don't know where that's going to live it lived in the mortgage market it lived on banks balance sheets it's not going to live there anymore so like where is it going to be um where's that rolling ball of leverage um Kriti, thanks so much. I appreciate you running. I'm sorry we made you run. No. Uh, Kriti Gupta joining us from Bloomberg. Marcus, this was really fun. This went by really fast. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. 
anytime. You're welcome back anytime. Um, you've been listening to The Cable. I'm Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.